0: Um, Today's reading comes from 2 Peter 1, starting at verse 1, and you can find that on page 1225 in the Blue Bibles. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure— they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. I'll now invite up Lauren, who's going to give the sermon today. Uh, Dear Lord, thank you for your sermon, Lauren. Thank you um, that she's going to bring us the knowledge of your word today. Please open our hearts and minds um, and speak your wisdom through her. Amen.
1: Thanks, Beck. Good evening, everyone. Uh, Yes, my name is Lauren. I'm one of the pastors here at Q Baptist, and it's a privilege to be speaking to you tonight. Uh, So as you may know, over the last few weeks, we have been working through our series called Moving on the Edge of Destiny. Uh, This has been about taking stock of the world around us, uh, looking at how things are shifting and changing with uncertainty in our society, our culture, and then addressing the question, how do we step into this unknown future as the people of God? How do we live out our faith as kingdom people? Now, the first part of this series was subtitled Foundations That Inspire, and over those first four weeks, our interim pastor, John, has been guiding us through some key foundations at the heart of the Christian faith. He's been reminding us that it is in Christ that we live and move and have our being, reminding us that we are beloved daughters and sons of God, that that is our our birthright, that's where we belong. We were reminded of the supremacy of Jesus in that beautifully rich passage in Colossians 1, how everything else comes into focus when we see Jesus for who he truly is. And then last week, John reminded us of the resources of the King, our glorious inheritance as children of the living God. So now building on those foundations, we're moving into the second part of our series where we want to dig into the practical details of these questions. How do we deepen our relationship with God? How can we be strengthened in our faith? How do we grow in Christ-likeness? As John has been reminding us these last few weeks, the Christian life is not merely knowing about these things, these truths. You know, We don't want to just know, we want to do, we want to live it out. So in the coming weeks, we're going to be talking more practically about spiritual formation and the practice of spiritual disciplines. And each week, we'll be focusing on a particular discipline or aspect of character growth in the Christian life, Uh, things like prayer, Bible reading, Sabbath, fellowship, obedience, and so forth. But today, I wanted to start with a broader introduction to spiritual formation generally. I think there's a lot that can be misunderstood uh, when we talk about spiritual formation, when we talk about the disciplines So before we go any further in the series, I wanted to make sure that we're building on the right foundations. So let's start with some debunking. Uh, When it comes to the life of faith uh, and things like spiritual disciplines in particular, I think a lot of misunderstanding is wrapped up in what I'm going to call the grace effort dichotomy. Uh, We tend to camp out on the extremes of either side of this equation. What do I mean by that? So, firstly, on the side of effort, uh, when it comes to the disciplines, when it comes to things we have to do in our faith, I think there's always a very real temptation for it to become a basis for works righteousness, you know, that we are earning our favor with God by engaging in specific spiritual practices. And this ends up distorting into quite a legalistic perception of the Christian faith, where we measure our worth before God in, you know, how often we read our Bible or how often we pray or attend church. We we try to use these external metrics of our own behavior to somehow justify our standing before God. But as the Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2 our standing before God has already been established through the work of Jesus. As he says in verse 4, Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And he goes on in verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So, quite clearly, it's not our works that make us right with God. It's not about winning Him over with our own personal holiness. I mean, we could never get there on our own, not even close. As Paul also wrote in Romans 3 we all fall short, every single one of us, but we are all justified freely by God's grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is fundamental. We have to remember the gift of God's grace. At the same time, I think the other major misunderstanding we see is, and I think, the overcorrection of this attitude Where in our determination to avoid legalism and a work's righteousness, we end up bouncing to the other extreme and end up throwing effort out the window altogether. Uh, We misunderstand God's grace as some sort of oblivious leniency and start to think, well, it doesn't really matter what I do. God loves me as I am, so I don't really have to bother trying. Now, of course, this is at odds with all the many exhortations we see in the New Testament about what it means to live as kingdom people. I've got a few samplings up on the slides there. 1 Timothy 4, train yourself to be godly. Hebrews 12, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Ephesians 5, be very careful how you live. Galatians 6, let's not become weary in doing good. Philippians 3, let's live up to what we have already attained. 1 Thessalonians 4. God has called us to live a holy life. You see, when it comes to the Christian walk, the idea of grace versus effort, it's actually a false dichotomy. It is not one or the other. As Dallas Willard famously put it, grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude effort is action. Without effort, we would be nowhere. Now, he's referring to that language of effort that we see all throughout the New Testament, you know, the effort of of running the race, of daily bearing our cross, of striving for godliness. It's the effort of discipleship. So, we have to be very careful at holding that balance. It's what I would call the expression of effort on the foundation of grace. And this is why I picked that reading from 2 Peter tonight as our scripture, because I think it speaks into that balance really well, especially when we're talking about spiritual formation. So let me read again for us from verse 3. It says, "'God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness.'" Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises, so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So you can see straight away in verse 3, it is God's power that gives us everything we need for a godly life. It is not of our own making. It is his enabling, his initiative, his work of grace within us. He has already given us everything we need to participate in the divine nature. These are the the resources of the King that John was speaking about last week, our glorious inheritance. So we rejoice, we, we celebrate in these great and precious promises. At the same time, there's also an onus on us to press into this. As Peter continues in verse 5, "...for this very reason." So in light of what we've just said, "...make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting they've already been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you see that balance that I'm talking about, the expression of effort on the foundation of grace. There is no doubt that our effort is required. There's very much something that we need to do. Uh, As Peter writes, we don't want our knowledge of Jesus to be ineffective and unproductive. It's not enough to merely know, to, to possess knowledge. We need to do, we need to live it out. But in the doing, in all our effort and striving, we have to, have to, have to remember that foundation of grace. I love how N.T. Wright summarizes this passage from 2 Peter. He observes that all of our efforts, they take place within the grace of God, by means of the promise of God, through the power of God leading to the kingdom of God. I'll say that again, as we make every effort in our spiritual lives, we do so within the grace of God, by means of the promise of God, through the power of God, and leading to the kingdom of God. So what does this actually look like? Uh, How do we understand and embrace the journey of spiritual formation without constantly bouncing between those extremes of grace and effort? Well, for a starting point, I think it's helpful to have a really solid definition of what spiritual formation actually is. And one of the best definitions that I've come across is from Robert Mulholland. Uh, he's written this fantastic book called Invitation to a Journey. Uh, it was actually the prescribed text uh, at one of my subjects at Bible College, and I found this book incredibly valuable in shaping my understanding of spiritual formation. So I want to share some of those insights with you today. So, Holland has the following definition for spiritual formation. He calls it the process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. That's the process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. Now, over the course of a few chapters in his book, uh, he unpacks this definition and he looks at the significance of each component, what it tells us about what spiritual formation is and also, crucially, what it is not. Uh, So, I'm going to do my best to walk us through an abridged version of that today, but I also do highly recommend reading the book if you get a chance. So, firstly, process. Spiritual formation is a process, which is to say, growing and maturing into Christ-likeness is not a quick-fix acquisition. It is a lifelong journey. And I emphasize this because I think it's something we can really struggle to, to fully grasp. It is so at odds with our cultural wiring. You know, we live in a world of instant gratification. And with all the advances of technology and online infrastructure, we are just accustomed to having the world at our fingertips. We don't even notice it. We don't even question it. It's just the reality we've always known. We're just used to instant solutions, instant results, everything we need at the click of a button. And so given this cultural discipleship, we can be inclined towards impatience, frustration, even total misunderstanding of the process of spiritual formation. Instead of a, a relational mindset, we bring a consumer mindset. Instead of patiently stepping into a lifelong journey of intimacy and growth with the Father, we can be inclined to try and find shortcuts to the, the mountaintop experiences as though there was some quick fix acquisition into spiritual wholeness. Oh, if I can just find the right strategies, if I can just figure out the best formula for my quiet times, you know, then, then I will unlock that elite level of enlightened spiritual maturity and I'll be set. You know, we can be resistant to the idea of continuous process because it sounds long, sounds hard. It sounds messy. And honestly, it can be, all those things. But I promise you, what is harder is the perpetual discouragement that will come from misunderstanding spiritual wholeness as an instant acquisition. I remember talking about this very issue with my spiritual director some years ago. Uh, when I was wrestling with my own feelings of, I guess, spiritual inadequacy. Uh, without consciously naming it as such, um, I was feeling as though, I guess I should have achieved like a higher or, or deeper level in my relationship with God. I guess with something of a, an arrogance of youth, I was basically wondering, well, shouldn't I have it figured out by now? And I just felt so discouraged and, and disappointed and basically like some kind of failure. But something she said which has really stuck with me. She encouraged me to embrace the slow work of God. To embrace the slow work of God. And I realized later that this was really reframing um, spiritual wholeness outside the cultural concepts of instant gratification and instead perceiving it as that journey, that process. And it reminded me of this fantastic quote from John Newton, Uh, who, among other things, is famous for writing the hymn Amazing Grace. Uh, Reflecting on his own spiritual journey, he wrote, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this really leads us into the next key component of that definition, that spiritual formation is a process of being formed, which is to say it is God who works in us to do the forming. We do not form ourselves. And again, this is a very countercultural notion because we pride ourselves on being in control, of being self-sufficient, of being masters of our own destiny, And we put so much stock in what we do. We're always defining ourselves, our identity, our worth in the things that we do. And Mulholland observes in his book, you know, when you apply that cultural lens to spiritual formation, we have a strong tendency to think that if only we do the right things, we will be the right kind of Christian, as though our doing would bring about our being. But this is very much at odds with the biblical language of action and identity. You know, we are called to to do things, to live in certain ways, not in order to be saved, but because we already are. It's like the verse I read earlier from Philippians 3, let us live up to what we have already attained. Our doing is meant to flow out of our being and not the other way around. Now, of course, as we flagged earlier, the idea of doing is where we tend to get unstuck. It's where we start really swinging on those extremes, on the grace effort spectrum. We can either fixate on you know, doing the right things, trying to bring about our own spiritual wholeness and forgetting that it's God's work in us, or we step so far into the notion of it being God's work that we think we don't have to show up or do anything at all. Now, I really like how the Apostle Paul speaks into this in Philippians 2, where he says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Or in another translation, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. So you see, it's that interrelationship. We work as God works in us. And this is so important to remember as we dig deeper into spiritual disciplines in the coming weeks. You know, praying, reading our Bible, all of these things are so, so important. But we have to remember it is not the disciplines themselves that change us. They help position us in a way that allows our hearts to be open to the work of God in us. Now, one of my lecturers at Bible College, Tom Kimber, uh, he once explained this concept with the analogy of gardening. He said, a gardener does not grow plants. They practice skills that facilitate growth that is beyond the gardener's direct control. So as we go into the rest of this series, exploring formation and the disciplines, we have to remember, you know, when we talk about the doing, it is not about doing the work to form ourselves, but rather doing what we can to make ourselves present and available for the work that God wants to do in us. Okay, the next part of the definition is about the image of Christ, that we are being formed in the image of Christ. Now, this is language straight from Scripture. There's verses in Corinthians and Romans about how we're being transformed into His image or we're being conformed to the image of the Son. Now, it's important to have this as a core part of our definition of spiritual formation because we need to be very careful not to bring a secular cultural mindset with us, as though this were merely a process of self-actualization or self-betterment. Spiritual formation is not about puffing myself up to be the best version of me. It's about laying myself down to become more like Christ. Now, this can be a very confronting and uncomfortable process. Uh, Mulholland notes in his book, you know, this is a process that primarily is going to take place at the points of our unlikeness to Christ's image. In our bondage, our brokenness, our struggles, uh, the things we hold on to, uh, the things that we don't want others to see, that right there, that is where God wants to get in and work His grace, His healing, His redemption and transforming us into likeness. Now, we can be reluctant to let God into that mess. Uh, We can even set up our own devotional rhythms to specifically avoid letting God into that mess. But we have to remember that God's grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in our weakness. And there is nothing that is beyond His redemption. And crucially, it is in being formed into Christlikeness that we are ultimately fulfilling our created purpose. I mean, this is what John has been speaking about these last few weeks. It's about becoming who we were made to be. So that brings us to the final part of the definition, which is for the sake of others, that we are in a process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. Now, this is a critical distinction to make. As we can often perceive spiritual formation to be a very inward, privatized, individualistic thing. It's just between me and God. It doesn't really have anything to do with anyone else. But friends, this is not how God calls us to be in the world. God does his work in us so that we may be Christ's ambassadors. So that we may be the light of the world, the city on a hill. That we may love others as he first loved us. Now, I love, love this quote from John Wesley, where he said, "'Solitary religion is not to be found in the gospel of Christ. Holy solitaries is a phrase no more consistent with the gospel than holy adulterers. The gospel of Christ knows of no religion but social, no holiness but social holiness.'" It's got a point. I mean, following Jesus is not something we're meant to do in disconnected isolation. One quick glance at the New Testament, and you will see that love for the other is at the very heart of the Christian faith. Again and again, we see these exhortations to love one another, to serve one another, to build one another up in love. I mean, this is what the kingdom is meant to look like. So when we talk about spiritual formation, we have to ensure that we are talking about a holistic spirituality, not one that's just confined to our private quiet times, but one that shapes and informs all that we do, including our relationships with others, our interactions with the world. It is for the sake of others, because this is what it truly means to be the people of God. I want to finish tonight by briefly addressing the question of why. (laughs) Why is all this spiritual formation stuff important? Uh, There's probably a whole other sermon in that question alone, but for tonight I want to say this. The thing we have to realize is that we are, each one of us, always being spiritually formed in one way or another. Uh, It is not a question of am I being formed But rather, who or what is forming me? Now, C.S. Lewis speaks into this in his book, Mere Christianity. I'm going to read this for you now. He said, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing Into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God, with its fellow creatures, and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing into one state or the other. It's a sobering pronouncement, but we have to ask ourselves, who do we want forming us, feeding us, shaping us? Jesus lays out this choice for us in John 10 verse 10 when he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I mean, in the words of Simon Peter, Lord, to whom else would we go? He is the one who made us who formed our very beings. He is the one who knows us completely and loves us absolutely. He is the one who meets us at our very worst and promises his very best. He invites us into the fullness of life. There is nothing else that will ever satisfy the deepest longing of our heart but the love and grace that is found in Christ Jesus. In him alone, we can know wholeness and redemption. We can know freedom from sin, from shame. We can know purpose and fulfillment, and we can take hold of the life that is truly life. So friends, as he has lavished his grace upon us, as he has given us his very great and precious promises so that we may participate in the divine nature, let us make every effort to press in to these rhythms of grace, to be present to the one who is present with us so that, in the words of Philippians, he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Our gracious and loving Father, Lord, we thank you for your abundant generosity. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8, you who did not spare your own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will you not also along with him graciously give us all things? Thank you that your divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Thank you that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Thank you that you are patiently working in us, transforming us into your likeness. And thank you that your grace is sufficient, that there is no shame to great no wound too deep. There is nothing beyond your redemption. So Lord, as we seek to partner with you in your work within us, help us, help us to live out that balance, that expression of effort on the foundation of grace. Help us to press into you, to offer all of our lives before you. May we heed the words of Jesus and remain in you. Remain in your love. Because apart from you, Lord, we can do nothing. To whom else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Speak those words afresh to us tonight and give us ears to hear. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.